From the Center for a New American Security, this is Stories from the Back Channel, the podcast about great moments in national security from the inside. I'm Ilan Goldenberg, the director of the Middle East Security Program here at CNAS and a veteran of the Pentagon and State Department. Today, we hear from Richard Fontaine about what it's like to work on foreign policy for a giant in the U.S. Senate and go behind the scenes of a presidential campaign. These days, Richard is CNAS's CEO. But before becoming my boss, he was a kid from Louisiana with dual interests in politics and foreign cultures. This led Fontaine to D.C., where he held jobs working with luminaries such as Richard Armitage and James Baker. But after a few years of jetting around the world, life in the West Wing was starting to take a toll. Fontaine was looking for a new opportunity, and it came one day in a form of an unexpected phone call. So one day I got a call from a colleague of mine who I had worked with on the Hill the first time around before grad school who said that John McCain's foreign policy guy was leaving and asked whether I was interested in interviewing for the job. And it was one of those times, you know, nine o'clock at night, I'm at my desk. I said, sure, you know, I mean, but in the back of my mind, I thought, okay, I will very likely stay put where I am, but it's an opportunity to meet John McCain. I've never met him before. I had always admired him. He had run unsuccessfully for president four years before in 2000. I thought he would have been a great candidate and a great president. Uh, what I didn't know at the time was it was sort of like, at least from my point of view, like test driving the car. Once I got into that meeting with him, I was ready to take the job. And then when they did offer me to the job, I jumped from the Bush White House to the McCain Senate office at a time when the Bush White House and the McCain Senate office were themselves at daggers drawn based on that 2000 election experience. Governor Bush had a, had an event and he paid for it and standing and stood next to a spokesman for a fringe veterans group. That fringe veteran said that John McCain had abandoned the veterans. Now, I don't know how, if you can understand this, George, but that really hurts. Yeah. That, that really hurts. Yeah. Let you, me should, you, should, you should be ashamed. Yeah, let me speak you should be ashamed. No. Now, if you wanna, that, now, if you so what drew you in during that meeting with McCain? There were a lot of things that drew me in. I mean, one was Senator McCain's just huge focus on foreign policy and national security. The problem in Afghanistan today is not innate xenophobia or hostility to the West. It is our own failed policies that are the problem. You know, there are a lot of senators who are interested in these things, but his combination of experience in it, interest in it, name recognition, personal energy meant that he wanted to travel around the world and try to make a difference where he could. And that was very attractive. United States Senators John McCain and Lindsey Graham visited International Security Assistance Force headquarters to recognize, promote, and re-enlist soldiers serving here in Afghanistan. First Lieutenant Christopher Michael says to receive the Bronze Star is a big deal, but to have a sitting United States Senator presented to you, that's just icing on the cake. He also, at the time, occupied a very peculiar political space. I mean, his approval rating among Democrats was as high as it was among Republicans. And there was really no other political figure who could sort of call him as they saw him to the degree that he could. John McCain, of course, is a registered Republican. But for big chunks of this speech last night, he sounded like an undeclared independent. I don't work for a party. I don't work for a special interest. I don't work for myself. I work for you. He did not have to worry 
or didn't worry at least as much about the domestic political implications or is this going to cost me dollars raised or votes gotten or things like that. So that combination of sort of political freedom and personal and political courage and interest and background and all of this uh, was pretty compelling. And then, you know, John McCain's a fun and charming guy that likes to crack jokes. And that was pretty obvious from the very beginning. We ended up having a pretty similar sense of humor, sarcastic and love to gossip and tell stories. So. Ladies and gentlemen, Senator John McCain. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here tonight. They tell me I'm the first sitting senator ever to host this show. They asked President Bush, they asked President Bush to do it, but apparently uh, he doesn't like to work on weekends. Uh, So maybe tell me a little bit, speaking of gossip and stories, tell me about one of the fun things you do as the foreign policy or national security, you know, legislative aide on on the Hill with a member of the Senate is you travel with them. Uh, McCain traveled a lot. I've seen pictures of you in the Arctic, I believe, in your office. And... That would be the South Pole. Oh, uh, I, we did travel to the Arctic three times, but we also traveled to the South Pole. And the photo I have hanging on my wall in my office has a picture of John McCain and me standing at the South Pole. And it says, to Richard, this is where you belong, John. <laughs> and that inscription to me encapsulates a lot of John McCain's humor, or at least I'm interpreting it as humor. So. <laughs> He said Streisand had tried to do his job talking politics, so he decided to try hers. Papa, can you see me? Pretty annoying, huh? But maybe tell us about other experiences traveling with him. Yeah, I mean, fun is an interesting term to use for traveling with John McCain. It was fun, but we also did things like go to Iraq 10 times and Afghanistan four or five and Pakistan repeatedly and trips where we would do eight countries in eight days and and things like that. But Senator McCain always had this sort of run to the sound of the guns attitude in political life. And that was true in the travels that he took as well. And so we would look at hot spots and he would want to go there as soon as possible. And I'll give you a, an example of that. We One time we had a trip that we were, Kyrgyzstan had had kind of a democratic revolution and we were going to be in Lebanon and Cyprus. So we were going to fly to Kyrgyzstan and meet the new government there. And Uzbekistan had just massacred about 230 people at a town called Andijan. On Saturday, as the Uzbek president, Islam Karimov, washed his hands of responsibility, they were washing blood off the streets of Andijan. Karimov blames outlawed Islamists. Local people say soldiers shot men, women, and children like rabbits. The purge that follows failed rebellion. And so I got called into McCain's office, as I pretty often did, and he was sitting on the couch with a world atlas spread in his lap, which was never a good sign. And he said, Richard, Richard, look, I, 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 Uzbekistan is on the flight path between Cyprus and Kyrgyzstan. And I said, OK, but we're doing four countries in five days. We're leaving on a Wednesday. We're going to be back on a Sunday. We have no time. We can't stop in Uzbekistan, especially because they just massacre all these people. He said, no, 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 here's what we're going to do. We can land on the ground. We'll spend three hours. We'll denounce the government. We'll meet with a couple of dissidents. We'll hold a press conference, and we'll be up back in the air before the shit hits the fan. It's going to be amazing. And uh, I said, okay. So we organized a three-hour visit to Uzbekistan. 
a week or so after they massacred all these people, not a single person in the government would meet with us. The dissidents who the embassy was able to put together, most of them unfortunately had seen better days. Uh, the embassy itself was in an old Soviet disco. So there were, you know, 50 foot ceilings with red and yellow lights and disco balls, <laughs> very dim. And then there were American cubicles lined up in there. And so, in fact, Senator McCain and a couple of his colleagues did give a press conference and and denounced the government with our ambassador who had to remain behind, sort of watching all this happen. And then we went to the airport and uh, we got on the plane. We, had, we were flying military air, so we were in a Gulf Stream. And we went to take off and the plane promptly hit a bird and had to circle back down and land again at the airport in Uzbekistan. Oh. And now they thought they had us because they came out and they said, well, in order to take off again, you're gonna have to file a new flight plan with our FAA, and unfortunately it's closed today. And so this sort of went back and forth. There was this old 1950s fire engine that showed up out of the blue. The ambassador ended up having to come back out to the airport and essentially he poked his head on the plane and said, don't anybody get off the plane, leave this to me. And spent about three hours essentially negotiating our release, which they finally allowed us to fly and then we took off again en route for Kyrgyzstan. But that's the kind of thing that John McCain liked to do. You know, another example, which I think actually I learned something about him in his history was when we traveled to Yukon Territory in Canada, we were looking at some climate change issues and all of this. Global warming presents a test of foresight, of political courage, and of the unselfish concern that one generation knows to the next. So when we landed, we were greeted by several local officials, and one of the local officials mentioned to the senator that the poet Robert Service, who I had never heard of, uh, had grown up in Whitehorse, where we were in Yukon. And McCain suddenly got extremely excited, inordinately excited, I thought. And next thing I know, I turned around and he had just disappeared. So he had gotten in a car of one of the local officials and they drove out to find where the house was where Robert Service had grown up. And they were gone for about an hour or so and they got back and McCain was in just this kind of ebullient mood and, and all this. And I said, John, what the, what the hell is going on here? And he said, well, when he was in prison in Hanoi, he was a prisoner of war for five and a half years, uh, about two and a half of those, he was in solitary confinement in essentially a cell that looked like a closet that I actually did visit with him uh, on another trip. And the prisoners were lined up in cells next to each other and they communicated through a tap code that they had developed where they would tap based on the walls, based on the frequency of letters in the alphabet. And they had a whole lot of time on their hands. And so they taught each other the things they knew. And so the cellmate, the guy next to him, had been required to memorize poems when he was in high school. And so they taught each other the poems that either each of them knew, and then they went to memorize them. And one of the poems, and one of the poems that Senator McCain always liked and enjoyed after that, was called The Cremation of Sam McGee, a very famous poem in Canada by the poet Robert Service, this guy who's house was in Yukon territory. There are strange things done in the midnight sun, but the men who boil for gold 
the Arctic trails are the secret tales that make your blood run cold. And so he's telling me the story after he got back, and he started to recite the poem verbally, and then he began to tap it out in the original tap code that he remembered from all those years before back in um, Vietnam. I cremated Sam McGee. And I thought, you know, it's, it's pretty hard not to be moved by something like that. Um, you know, is there a you know a legislative achievement or something that you guys did in the Senate that you're particularly proud of, or that that, that you think he really moved in that you had an opportunity to play a role in? In 2005, in part of the War on Terror, the the so-called CIA black sites were still mm-hmm. operating. The interrogation techniques that the United States had used involved things like waterboarding and slamming people into walls and stress positions and sleep deprivation forced nudity, all these things in combination. And I had had a little inkling that the black sites existed from my time at the NSC. It was clear to me when I started working for Senator McCain that he didn't know the first thing about this. He had been on the Armed Services Committee, but not on the Intelligence Committee and hadn't been briefed on these things. And then Abu Ghraib happened, where these pictures of Iraqi detainees piled up and mistreated really went viral. The Army confiscated some 60 pictures of Iraqi prisoners being mistreated. And in many of the pictures, Americans, both men and women, are laughing, posing, pointing, are giving a thumbs up. The result, six Americans are being court-martialed. And I had only been working for Senator McCain for literally a couple of months. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, I wonder how this guy is going to react to this. Because on the one hand... I could see him saying, you know, torture? That's not torture. You want to hear torture? I was tied to the ceiling for days on end. I was, you know, I had my limbs broken, you know, all this other kind of stuff. And as it turned out, he was even more appalled than I was. He just said, this is un-American. This is a grave violation of the values that we hold dear, certainly of the Geneva Conventions and of our international obligations. And this can't stand. I'm gravely concerned that many Americans will have the same impulses I did when I saw this picture, and that's to turn away from them. And we risk losing public support for this conflict. As Americans turned away from the Vietnam War, they may turn away from this one. Now, Mr. Secretary, I'd like to know, what were the instructions to the guards? That is what the uh, investigation that I've indicated has been undertaken. But Mr. Is, Secretary, is that, that's a very simple, straightforward question. Well, the, the, uh, as Chief of Staff of the Army can tell you, the guards are trained to guard people. They're not trained to interrogate. They're not. And it wasn't just Abu Ghraib. It was the broader set of, it was essentially the use of torture as an interrogation technique. This is a very, very terrible time for America. These young people who are serving are the best. They're wonderful. And they are being besmirched by uh, the actions of a few, I believe. And so it took some time for Senator McCain and Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator John Warner to kind of figure out what they wanted to do. And I was very involved in that process. And ultimately, they 
introduced under Senator McCain's leadership what was ultimately called the Detainee Treatment Act, which required, among other things, anybody in a Department of Defense facility to be interrogated only in accordance with the manual that was already in place saying what you could do and what you couldn't do. And anybody who was in some other detention, CIA or something like that, could not be subjected to cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment. And I think that this will help us enormously in winning the war for the hearts and minds of people throughout the world in the war on terror. This was a major, major fight with the Bush administration and with some Republicans in the Congress. And Senator McCain, you know, was willing to accept whatever the political consequences were in order to push this. Ultimately, it did pass. It was enacted into law and it changed overnight the practices that were being conducted in the black sites. Senator McCain has um, been a leader to make sure that uh, the United States of America upholds the values of America as we fight and win this war on terror, and we've been happy to work with him to achieve um, a common objective, and that is to make it clear to the world that this government does not torture and that we adhere to the International Convention of Torture, whether it be here at home or abroad. Moving on, so then 2007, 2008, uh, you move on to the presidential campaign. I'm not running for president to be somebody, but to do something, to do the hard but necessary things, not the easy and needless things. How's a presidential campaign different than uh, working in a Senate office? In 2007, I did most of the campaign-related work, sort of on the off hours here and there, and in 2008, after... Senator McCain won the New Hampshire primary. I, I moved over to the campaign more or less full time. And the basic content of what one does is actually not very different. Something happens in North Korea and you're trying to determine what the response should be. Someone has an idea. Someone, you know, is coming to visit. You're trying to push an idea or an agenda. Senator McCain gave a lot of speeches as a senator, which I drafted almost all of his foreign policy related speeches. He gave a lot of speeches as a presidential candidate, which I drafted most of his foreign policy speeches. Uh, But then there are things that are very different. For example, when I used to write speeches for him, I would write a speech, show him the chief of staff who might make some changes, and then Senator McCain would take a look at it and read it. And that was the process. Well, suddenly when you're on a big campaign, there's these things called speechwriters. And there's a whole process involved and everybody wants to get involved in that. Everything you do or say, certainly the words you're putting into the mouth of the candidate or statements, is sort of um, examined with a very uh, high degree of literalism and, and you know people looking for advantage. Uh, we did a good amount of traveling domestically and internationally during the campaign, and the, you could just feel the, the attention and the stakes being so much higher. And now, in these tough, changing times, after all you've done for our country, you want your government to understand what you're going through to stand on your side and fight for you. And that's what I intend to do. Of course, it was a political gloss to all of this. You're, you're in a competition first against all the primary challengers on your own party side, and then with the, the general election candidate on the other side, which brings you into the conventions and all these other kind of things. You know, I had very little public profile because I had worked in the government. And so suddenly I was out acting as a surrogate for 
the McCain campaign. And, you know, you can say 99 things well, but if there's one thing that you say publicly or say to the media that is not that, then that's going to be the one that's focused on and remembered. And so I can recall saying uh, even pretty anodyne stuff. And then there was a, a group that was led by one, uh, or not, it was at least <laughs> staffed by one Elon Goldenberg, who I didn't know who this was at the time, but with lightning speed would put out some email statement or denouncing whatever it was as the most dastardly neoconservative warmongering bush-like <laughs> thing anyone could possibly imagine i forgot this until after alan and i started to work together at cnas um after you agreed to hire exactly exactly <laughs> exactly that was a, a new experience uh and then also you know i have tended on occasion to make the occasional attempt at humor or sarcasm and i can remember one time when I was in Miami. I was involved in a surrogate debate on Latin America policy. And so there were two McCain people and two Obama people, and everybody was trying to say, oh, you know, my, my candidate is great because he's been involved in Latin America for doing this and that and that and forever and ever. And so when Senator McCain had been in uh, at the Naval Academy, he had a Brazilian girlfriend that he met on some ship visit or something like that and he wrote about it in one of his memoirs well the, the press went down to brazil and found this wonderful lady who was in her 70s and and all this other stuff and so this was a minor little story during the campaign this former brazilian model and ballerina says she had a brief but romantic encounter with the republican nominee more than 50 years ago and so uh, I made what I thought was the joking observation that, you know, Senator McCain's experience in Latin America goes all the way back to his Brazilian girlfriend. So who could be more qualified to know about, you know, the challenges and opportunities of the Western Hemisphere than John McCain? OK, that's kind of Washington humor. It's not really funny, but it's, you know, funny enough, right? The Miami Herald, who had a reporter there, put out a breaking news alert. McCain advisor cites Brazilian bombshell as foreign policy experience. And she contrasted this with people who would say Obama grew up in Indonesia for a while. So that was his sort of secret foreign policy experience and things. Well, this traveled faster than a 911 call and it just went everywhere. It's picked up by the wires, the whole thing. And so I, I called actually the reporter who said, well, you know, I said I was joking. She said, oh, well, your face didn't look very smiley. I didn't know you were didn't, you didn't say you were joking. I said, I didn't think anybody could possibly take this seriously. So she said, okay, I'll, I'll change it. I'll change it. So then she put out a, a subsequent article that said, you know, after this story initially went viral, Fontaine called claiming that he had been joking all along, which, of course, made it worse. And then this was picked up by Keith Olbermann, who then had his MSNBC show two days later. And I was labeled, quote, one of the worst people in the world. Today's worst person in the world. Complete with essentially a mugshot that someone kind of found on the internet somewhere of some headshot of me and, and things like that. And for many of my colleagues, this was kind of amusing. Uh, you know, this was kind of a blip on the radar screen. Uh, oh, isn't this funny that, you know, you who are so, you know, diligent and careful and then something like this, you know, all this other kind of stuff. I can tell you for me, that was not the emotional response to this set of activities. <laughs> so it was it was a long week in both the McCain campaign and the Fontaine household for me while I had this first experience of sort of, you know, public being taken to the woodshed for something I could do absolutely nothing about. So one more question, actually, on the campaign, which is where are you 
on in election night 2008. Election night 2008, I was in Phoenix at the Biltmore Hotel where the the campaign was and, and Senator McCain was. John McCain is back in his home state of Arizona. The Republican nominee rallied supporters in Prescott on the steps of the historic courthouse where Barry Goldwater there launched his campaign. There was a, a director of national intelligence team. I was, because I had my clearances, I was the liaison to the intelligence community for the campaign as well. And so one of the things that happens if someone wins a presidential election as famously happened with Donald Trump's phone calls from Trump Tower is that you start getting calls coming in from every world leader and and the order in which you return those calls and what you say on them, which will very quickly be leaked, is kind of all important because it's seen as the first signal of your foreign policy priorities and all of that. And it makes big news, especially abroad. And so the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, had uh, sent out a, a jump team to Phoenix that would be in a position, had McCain won and had he wished to do it, to receive the president's daily brief the next morning. And of course, the same thing was true of, of Obama. And there were some materials related to world leaders and phone calls and things like that. And uh, so I met with these folks out there. And then uh, I guess it was about 7 o'clock, maybe a little bit earlier than that, on election night. And I got a call, um, them asking me if I could return the materials because the team was needed to get on a plane to go to Chicago. Now, they hadn't called anything for anybody. Yeah. I mean, okay, it wasn't looking good. I mean, you know, yeah. once we lost Virginia, it wasn't looking good. But I said, look, you know, I mean, come on, you know, this election's not over. I mean, you know, who knows? Lightning could strike and all this other stuff. And they were like, look, if it makes you feel better, we can you know, postpone this. But we, we, it's kind of like we got to go. So I said, no, that's fine. So um, so we met. And, and then that night, uh, Senator McCain gave what I thought actually probably was the finest speech he's ever given, which is you know, in a strange way, his concession speech to Barack Obama, because, you know, compared to 2016, it was not a particularly bitterly fought campaign, but every campaign is bitterly fought. And, you know, it had been a hard won contest. And for John McCain, this had been something that people talked about him being president of the United States one day when he was in the prison camp in Vietnam. I mean, this has been a kind of a lifelong aspiration of his. And this was it. It was all over. And Obama, who had not any of the experience or background that McCain had, suddenly was going to be the president. And so I was in the, the Biltmore Hotel out on the lawn there, and I was on the lawn watching the speech where he said that during this campaign, Barack Obama was his competitor, but now he will be his president. I wish Godspeed to the man who was my former opponent and will be my president. And I call on all Americans, as I have often in this campaign, to not despair of our present difficulties, but to believe always in the promise and greatness of America. So that was a pretty poignant moment. And then, and then I said goodbye to Sarah Palin, who left with the Secret Service. John McCain immediately dismissed the Secret Service and drove himself out to his apartment in Phoenix. And then about two days later, I had taken the campaign plane back to Washington for the final time and went over to the campaign headquarters to sort of clear myself out. And my uh, phone rang and it was John McCain who had been, was up in his cabin in, in northern Arizona. And he said, we got to go on a trip. And I said, well, what do you think, what the hell do you think we've been doing for two years, especially you? No, no, we're going to go somewhere fun. This is not going to be one of these grueling trips where we're changing hotels every night and we only go do hard stuff. We're going to go somewhere fun. So think of something fun. And we went on eight, an eight country and eight days trip. Uh, so, you know, he couldn't help himself. 
Well, I do remember this similar story, like working for John Kerry in 2011 and 2012, when I was in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, or even 13. And for a while, as we got close to the election, and Kerry was lined up to potentially be Secretary of State, and and you had all this work he had to do on the campaign, he hadn't traveled for like six months, and it was driving him <laughs> absolutely bananas. All yeah. he wanted to do was, yeah. just like McCain, get yeah. on one of these six countries in six days and go do all these things and talk to all these because that's you know they love to do that that's the most interesting stuff for them i think in foreign policy is engaging with people on issues and having an impact like that well and as times had it we you know among the places we went the mumbai attacks had happened in 2008 and so we saw prime minister singh in india just a few days after those attacks happened which again was a pretty moving Experience, but then we went to Bangladesh, and they're at, at, essentially at the, the State Department's request. And Bangladesh, there had been a coup, and there was the military government put a technocratic caretaker government that was going to take the country back to democratic elections. And if those few who know uh, Bangladeshi politics, there are two women who it's sort of alternated back and forth, and it's been very difficult to sort of keep the democratic momentum in terms of free and fair elections and orderly transition of power and all this. Imagine what would happen in the United States if, a few weeks before polling day, the Democrats declared they're boycotting the election. That's more or less the equivalent of what's now going on in Bangladesh. So when we got there, we met with the caretaker government and with some of these, uh, and a few of these others, and they had actually played McCain's concession speech on national TV to say, see, in a democracy, this is how the loser concedes graciously to the winner. You don't threaten to put each other in jail. You don't you don't claim that you didn't lose. You don't put your people out in the streets. This is how democracy works. Now, ultimately, probably could have used a little of that in 2016. But at Bangladesh, you know, that was a, it was a lesson for them. I urge all Americans who supported me to join me in not just congratulating him, but offering our next president our goodwill and earnest effort to find ways to come together to find the necessary compromises to bridge our differences and help restore our prosperity, defend our security in a dangerous Richard world. Richard Fontaine is CEO of the Center for New American Security. Before that, he served as foreign policy advisor to the late Senator John McCain. Next time on Stories from the Back Channel, we open up the Pentagon's checkbook and ask how and why our country spends more on its military than the next seven countries combined. Well, it turns out our country isn't really like any other country. Former Pentagon budget maven and director of CNAS's defense program, Susanna Bloom, takes a deep dive into the military budget. She makes the case for why it's worth it for us to spend big and smart on defense. We in the United States have made a decision that we want the military to be able to do things like ensure freedom of navigation to make sure that trade lanes remain open, you know, to move oil around the world, to import goods, to export goods, et cetera, et cetera. That's really expensive. Stories from the Back Channel is a production of the Center for New American Security and is produced by RES Audio. I'm Elon Goldenberg, and I've been your host. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, and while you're there, leave us a review.